Welcome to the Winter Palace. I'm your host, Mark Cole, editor and publisher of Odessa's Test Magazine. Today on the pod, we have the broadcaster, writer, and comedian Kevin Day. We are mainly going to talk about his new book, Who Are You?, about the 92 clubs in the English football pyramid, and his podcast, The Price of Football. But we spent a lot of time talking about British comedy and American comedy and all sorts of uh, wonderful rambling things. So if you like old school British comedy, old American comedy, or you like football, this is the pod for you. We also will hopefully be announcing in the next week or so our next project either uh, on the pod or on the web or both. So please keep an eye out for that. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoy the show. Welcome back to the Winter Palace. The new English Football League seasons have just started, and I'm happy to have our guest make his first appearance on the show to talk about the new season and a variety of other related subjects. The funny thing is, we had been talking about doing this pod, and in between the, when we first started talking and now, he's had a book out. So we're obviously going to talk about that. So to, I'm happy to welcome, I believe, the first guest on the podcast who shares a birthday with me, Kevin Day. How's it going, Kevin? Well, now I've found out we share a birthday, it's, it's, it's going very well. I, the sad thing is I imagine there's probably about 25 or 30 years between our various days of birth, but we'll, we'll draw a veil over that, Mark, and just celebrate the fact that we're spring babies together. No, I believe it's, uh, it's much closer than that, so... Uh, I'm, uh, yeah, my number this year, uh, st- this was the first year I started with a five. Oh, wow, really? Oh, okay. Yes. Then there's, 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 well, there's still a gap. You, you, I have to say, if you don't mind me saying so, Mark, you sound much younger, but, you know. Oh, thank you. You're welcome. <laughs> and I guess, uh, before we get going, I should start with the most important question probably on the pod today. Uh, how's the cat? The cat is lovely. She's a bit grumpy because the clocks went back. Uh, and unlike me, I love the winter. I'm a proper winter baby, which is why I'm glad to be doing the Winter Palace pod. I, I, I tolerate the summer. I tolerate heat. I don't mind daylight, but as long as it's during the, the hours of daytime, the, the fact that it's light at 10 o'clock at night is a, an abomination as far as I'm concerned. But the, the cat's fine. She's, she's on good form. We just managed to get her in out, out of the cold. She's lying in in front of the TV where she likes to lie, which is with her back to it as a kind of permanent criticism to the state of British television. But thank you for asking. You're you're the first podcast uh, presenter that's ever asked me how the cat is, so I'm very chuffed about that. Yeah, I I agree with many of your weather sentiments. I mean, I work I work overnights, so we are now getting to the point in the year we don't start daylight savings until well i guess it ends uh this weekend because ours is usually right around halloween so we are getting to the point because i work overnight and i work 12 hour shifts so i am nearing the point where i will get up where it is close to dark go to work come home still dark go to bed so i do not see the daylight until my day's off but i'm fine with i'm fine with that yeah, that's 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 kind of like my life as a younger stand-up comedian. We very rarely saw daylight. You're only three hours ahead of us now, aren't you? I, I get confused because my sister-in-law lives in Colorado, and she's never quite sure what the time difference is, which is why she always rings up at odd times 
normally when we're eating. But yeah, you're you're three hours ahead of us now. Is that true? We are where I am currently on the East Coast. We are four oh, okay. behind you, and then on Sunday when it goes back, it will go back to five. Yeah, that, but that's what. But, that, sorry, mate. Go on. No, I was gonna say the thing. I it's funny. I just uh, had this discussion with somebody recently about time zones and. You know, the country is so big, we have official on the mainland, there's four time zones. Mm. But there's also weird pockets across the country where there are some places that don't do daylight savings at all. Oh, really? And then there are some places where, depending on where they are located, they aren't the same as nearby places. Well, the example I always give is I went to college in Indiana, which is in the Midwest, but Indiana has three different, when I went there, and this is in the eighties, um, they had three different time zones because the Northern portion of the state, which was basically a suburb of Chicago stays on Chicago time. Chicago's in central. Wow. So that part of Indiana stays does whatever Chicago does. So they stay with them on central time. The southern part of Indiana, which is a suburb of Louisville, stays on eastern time all year because they're a suburb of, of there. Okay. The middle part of Indiana, when I was there, did not use daylight savings time. So <laughs> half the year it was, like, say, if it was now, like, right now it's... Uh, quarter after two in the afternoon in Indiana, where I was in college. But next week, when the clocks change, it'll be, go back to being quarter after three. Right. So, but I mean, you could obviously see the thing where, when you're a, you know, if if Britain was big enough, and just imagine if sort of, you know, you had some of the London suburbs, like we're on a different time. They obviously would need to stay with the city. Otherwise, yeah. you know, you could, you know, commute and you live, you know, it's 10 o'clock when you get up in your house and you drive to work 10 minutes later and suddenly it's an hour earlier. Yeah, that's real. I'm, I'm on a bound to say, Mark, that there are parts of this country that are 25 years behind London, but the time thing is really confusing. for. I've got a theory that, that there isn't one British person that isn't fascinated with the usa we're all fascinated with the usa and our relationship with it but for the most part we have so little knowledge about your country and its politics and the way it's run and that includes the size of it most british people don't realize the sheer size of america because we live in a country that's always punched above its weight but the one thing we we do know is that it's the same time here as it is in glasgow or, or aberdeen and it's it's kind of baffling to us to, to be in a country where your TV programs don't go out at the same time, essentially. No, it's, yeah, and that's, that's another thing you have to get used to. Like I said, when I lived there that, you know, local, I mean, this is long enough ago. This was before cable and before satellite wow. that, you know, programs used to always go out at the top of the hour by time zone. So if you were right. watch, so if it was, you know, today's Thursday, if, 
you know, we wanted to watch the, the Cosby show in, you know, the mid 1980s when it was the biggest thing on television. Yeah. You know, it was at eight o'clock on Thursday night on NBC, which meant it was eight o'clock here on the East Coast. But when they saw it in Chicago, they didn't see it at the same time as we did. They saw it at their eight o'clock. Wow. So, like, if you see American television commercials, they used to say, you know, this show is on, or sports, they would say, this game starts at 5 o'clock Eastern, 4 o'clock Central, Mm. 2 Mountain, and 1 Pacific. (laughs) And then, like I said, then you have all the weird various... No, but, no, it's funny you say that because, you know, I have always been an Anglophile growing up. You know, I was the person who watched, well, what we call public television, which is where all the British imports were and the music and the books and, you know, all that. And, you know, I had plenty of Shakespeare. You know, I have have an English English and a history degree. So, you know, I had plenty of Shakespeare growing up. So, it's yeah, it's just one of those... It's one of those things, and now that, like, the world is so small, thanks to technology, that I was going to I was going to say one of the things that I remember, like, the one of the first things I remember seeing you on was back when geoblocking was not as sophisticated as it was, you know, we could watch the BBC online. Yeah. So, I mean, so I remember watching you on Match the Day 2 back in the day, because... I don't think the BBC really started getting good about cracking down until like maybe five or six years ago. So other than that, you know, if you had the correct sort of, if you had, if you knew what you were doing, yeah, you know, you could watch British TV. You know, I used to watch um, because it wasn't on at the same time. Like we would watch Doctor Who when it was debuted on BBC One at you know seven o'clock or whatever it was on a Saturday night because either it wasn't being shown here at all concurrently or it wasn't being shown until the next day or the day after or something like that. Yeah. So I'm I'm always amazed, Mark, by and quite flattered in a way by how many Americans I meet or talk to say that they grew up watching British comedy and, and Doctor Who always comes up. Monty Python always comes up. And I think it's only in the last year or so that the BBC have started to protect their own output and put it in a place where it's accessible. So the BBC's, I think, is one of the greatest institutions of the world, but it's always been very modest about its output and about acknowledging that people all over the world might want to watch it. And as you say, they were very slow to cotton on to the idea that people were able to access BBC programs and it's only now that they've started to realize well we've got this amazing archive we need to sort of protect it and maybe charge people a little bit to to watch it but it's it's really gratifying when I hear Americans talk about I mean I've met some Americans who know more about British comedy from the 80s than than I do because it it seems to have struck a chord with a certain generation of of young Americans who perhaps weren't interested in your own comedy but yeah at the same time we used to it was always on tape. We couldn't access it on TV because you, you mentioned the time before cable, which you know, my 25 year old son would just, his eyes would glaze over at a time before cable. But we used to get tapes like friends of ours would send tapes of the Saturday, the Saturday night live. 
And we used to watch that. We used to be fascinated by American TV at the same time as a whole generation of American youngsters were fascinated by British TV, which I found out. I mean, Saturday Night Live, the the, glory, the, the, you know, the Bill Murray era, for me was, you know, we used to get the tapes and we'd stay, we'd watch it as though it was live TV. I remember the first time I went to the States and actually watched it live with, with three mates. It was the most exciting thing that had ever happened to me. We were in uh, Lake Placid, upstate New York City, with a friend of ours who coached football over there. And we got off the plane and we got Buffalo Wings and we watched the, the Monday night game. And then, But we couldn't wait for Saturday so we could watch Saturday Night Live. So it's whatever whatever people say about our two countries, there is a cultural link between our two countries that can't be um, can't be fractured just by whatever president is currently in power. And it's it's I'm fascinated by the relationship between our two countries and how we always kind of fall back on each other in the end culturally. It's funny, too, that there's a thing, especially the stuff that when we like when we grew up watching British comedy on PBS in the 70s, I think a lot of people, even though people that liked it and enjoyed it, wouldn't necessarily understand, too, that I think they blanketly assume everything is from the BBC. Yeah. That because PBS showed... You know, yes, they showed Python and Doctor Who, and those were sort of like the two big things. But then, you know, Masterpiece Theater and the, you know, like the Sherlock Holmes mysteries and things like that. Yeah. That it's not until, like, you go back later and you realize, oh, I never realized this was an ITV show. Yeah, or, that's interesting. Or, I mean, one of the, I mean, I'm a big um, sort of old school uh, spy fan. Yeah. So, like, obviously we got to see the obviously we had the Avengers, but and and the Prisoner and Secret Agent slash Danger Man, whichever you prefer to call it. Yeah. But other than that, we really and then a lot of the other science fiction. But it wasn't until the last few years between DVDs and now being able to watch stuff on YouTube that like I was able to watch a lot of the. I don't want to say uh, lesser known spice. Like I had never seen until, you know, the last few years, like I had never seen department S or I hadn't wow. seen yeah. um, like Randall and Hopkirk or things like that, that, you know, so it's, it's, it's all new to me, even though it's 50 years old. And of course, you know, you have the great fun of watching stuff from 50 years ago where you're like, Hey, that's so-and-so before they became famous. The, epi the one I always cite is there's an episode of Randall and Hopkirk where um, the the grandmother devises a system on how to win at roulette, so she goes to Monte Carlo. And But that episode, in addition to sort of having the regular, that episode has Brian Blessed – yeah. And Nicholas Courtney from Doctor Who and Roger Delgado from Doctor Who are all in yeah. that episode. And so you're watching it now and you're like, these are, I mean, Blessed was, you know, a fairly big name then. But like the other guys were just sort of regular ITV character actors. Yeah, there was a, a kind of repertory company of that both BBC and ITV had a sort of repertory company of, of actors that became more or less famous. It's, it's interesting you mentioned The, the Prisoner because I... Randall and Hopkirk, which for those of your listeners who don't know, I used to watch it as a, a, a child and a young man. It's a, 
a detective whose partner dies and becomes his ghostly partner. Um, uh, it solves all sorts of mysteries by virtue of being a ghost. And I remember as a kid thinking, this is terrible. But now watching reruns of it now on ITV, there's a real charm about it that I didn't notice at the time. But the, the, the shows of that era that were really popular was The Avengers and The Prisoner. And that was because we thought they were the closest to American shows. We, they were the, the shows that had the biggest budget. They were the shows that had the most imagination. And that's how we saw... We saw American TV. We thought that everything that came out of America was was bigger, better, better produced, better directed. Because uh, there's a kind of inferiority complex about our country in the in the in the seventies. And it's interesting you mentioned Sherlock Holmes as well, because you love spy drama. My my big thing is is golden age crime fiction, and you know, Sherlock Holmes is right at the start of that. And, and Arthur Conan Doyle was fascinated by Americans. It's amazing how many Sherlock Holmes stories have the the origin. In in America, you know, the, 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 he talks about the Ku Klux Klan. He talks about uh, American claims diggers. There's, there are several stories that that, ha, that are based in America, and because there was that the, that theory that nobody knew about America, so you could you could make things outlandish and set them in America, and people people would believe them because it was such a new country. People would say, oh yeah, that sounds perfectly feasible, uh, and that kind of fascination that, that sort of links into the same fascination that we we all still in this country have with with American culture, albeit for a lot of us, I'm, I'm more fascinated by the American culture of the 60s and, and 70s. I mean, 70s crime. My dad's is my, one of my favourite memories of growing up in the in the 70s, waiting for for match of the day, the English football programme to be on Saturday night. Was my dad loved American cop shows. He loved Starsky and Hutch. He loved Kojak in particular. He, he particularly loved. So I've I've still got a love of those programmes now because I just remember being so happy watching my dad really really get into them and there was you know that that morality that american tv shows had because the you know the the, the villain the crook never got away with it and it's he, that was something we always used to to really like well the other funny thing about the british shows that we saw one we generally only got to see the quote-unquote best of the exports right so there's a lot of british comedy shows that like i never remember seeing on television here at the time, like I said, we, you know, we obviously had Python, yeah. But you know, and we had Are You Being Served? Were like sort of the the, <laughs> the the classics of British TV. But I never recall, as a kid on PBS, like ever seeing Dad's Army, which is strange wow, okay. now in, in hindsight, knowing how big Dad's Army was. And then you know there are things you know now that I've gone on to watch stuff like. You know, I had never heard of, you know, It's Not Hot Here, Mum, or things yeah. like that. And I'm just, I mean, and now I can understand probably why that didn't translate. Yeah. But the other yeah. funny thing is there's so many American, especially American comedies of the 70s, that I did not realize as a kid that were basically lifted entirely from British shows. Yeah. I mean, you you like, you would see it in the credits, and you're like... Okay, so this is based, you know, like Sanford and Son was like a famous show in the seventies. Yeah. But you know, I never saw an episode of Step So Step So and Son until yeah. much much later than same, you know, or Man About the House, which became Three's Company, which was like yeah. one of the biggest comedies in the late seventies. And it's funny too to realize what they they picked and choosed. 
Like, they didn't, you know, because I don't remember if, but, like, one of the things about Three's Company, if you remember, is the only way that John Ritter could live with the two girls was because the landlord was sort of puritanical, was he had to pretend to be gay. Yeah. So that there was nothing going on. But, like, you know, I think I've watched Man About the House, and I don't necessarily remember that, you know, that piece being a part of it but yeah. it's funny when you when you look at all these shows from the 70s and you're you know i mean all in the family is one of the most famous sitcoms in history and it's based yeah. on 704 hauser street and yeah. you're like a show that you know hardly anybody would have ever heard of here it, it's funny that the gay reference thing is really interesting because uh, british comedy in the 60s and 70s effeminacy was a staple of, of british comedy in the 60s and 70s but nobody was ever gay there were there were no gay characters it was alluded to but nobody was ever gay but you couldn't go wrong in 60s and 70s british television by having a joke where somebody who looked like a girl from behind turned out to be a man with long hair it was was something that really fascinated and made english audiences laugh so that was why how they got away with it in in the our version of um free's company man about the house uh because it was implied that he was a he was a, a girly sort of girl and the, the yeah the British are obsessed with sexuality in a way that I don't think no other country are but in a kind of pantomime way but the the Dad's Army Are You Being Served one's really interesting because it, it ain't half hot mum which you mentioned was one of the most popular sitcoms of the seventies it's about a, a, a British army unit based in India and it's not shown on British TV anymore you won't see repeats on uh, British television of that show because so many of the Asian actors in it are actually white actors who who browned up because so much of the humour is at the expense of the the Indian people, and because there is a, a a very effeminate character in that at which some pretty insulting comedy is based. And Are You Being Served is still being shown, but is is now considered just an antique basically because it's so full of pun and innuendo. And yet the one that stood the test of time is Dad's Army, which gets will get million, a million people watching. Now, Dad's Army is, is never not on, on British TV, on cable, and it's still really popular. And my theory is that because it was historical in the first place, because it was set during the Second World War, it never actually really aged, and it's still one of those shows that you, you can show it to young kids and they love it. The Python thing's really interesting. I, I've met all the, all the Pythons, and apart from John Cleese, I like, I like them all, but... I've, I was I had big arguments with people like Eddie Izzard, for example, who's obsessed with Monty Python, because I don't think it was as big an influence on on alternative comedy, for want of a better word, as as some people think it was. I mean, for me, it was a and it still is a very middle class misogynist comedy. I I, I got why people laughed at it, but I I still don't get why people think it's such an influence because I don't remember as somebody who was around at the start of alternative comedy or uh, certainly shortly afterwards um i don't get that it was an influence on on actual comedians certainly an influence on sketch groups but on actual stand-up comedy i don't i don't think and for me a lot of monty python doesn't stand the test of time as much say as dad's army does and yet there are still uh, certain sketches like the the mounty sketch and certain songs that are still being used as in popular culture now as, as we saw with python being upset with with trump using the you know uh the, the the Mountie song recently so well i think too the thing here with python is because it was first became popular among 
college students, and then it just uh-huh. sort of, and then it, and then it became sort of the the culture, you know, the thing to like. And yeah, you, I mean, you look at it f- sort of historically now, from our point of view, you know, it's you know five Oxbridge comedians and yeah. and an American. So, you know, it's no wonder you know I'm in you know an overeducated you know, person who studied popular culture. So, you know, I love the fact that, you know, you've got the world lead, you know, the football, you know, the Greek philosopher football sketch yeah, yeah, or, yeah. you know, and that it it's sort of the same to me about, you know, I, I was in grad school in the 90s and I was studying metatext and self-referentiality. And that was like this humongous time for that, where, you know, Python was one of the sort of progenitors of it. But by the 90s, you get the Simpsons. And and the two things for me are like the Simpsons and Mystery Science Theater, which are like nothing but references. And it's okay that you don't get all of them because there's so many. But, you know, one of the Mystery Science Theater guys always said, you know, there are so many jokes as long as one person gets – this reference to, you know, one person is going to get a joke about French philosophy. Yeah. And one person is going to get a joke about a baseball player. They yeah. don't have to be the same person, but they're both enjoying the, the show. And, you know, and, you know, Lord, no, I mean, The Simpsons is sort of like the American equivalent of Python, where, you know, it's chock full of all these guys that went to Harvard. You know, that, so, you, you know, you have an. I always say that uh, I think you could actually recreate the entirety of Citizen Kane just based on references from The Simpsons. <laughs> yes, well, that's where where I will acknowledge where Monty Python was brilliant for me was their their in jokes and their references about the BBC, their jokes about continuity announcers, their jokes about BBC weathermen. Those things I found very funny. But that's interesting about writing comedy with references that not everybody will get, because that's one of the things that I've always tried to do in my in my stand-up, is I, I've never liked... I don't want to write lowest common denominator jokes for anybody, and I don't, in my own stand-up, for my own material, I always think, I, I'll try and make everything funny, but if people don't get a reference, then fine, they can Google it afterwards. I, I don't want to have to explain anything. And the fact is that it's impossible to write comedy if you think, right, everybody in this room has to understand every word of every joke I do. And I'll, I'll happily, if sections of the audience seem a little bit baffled, I'll happily explain what the joke was about and get another joke off the back of that. But eventually you have to learn as a comic. It, it, you know, it's, I, I remember in the Edinburgh Festival a few years ago when I did a, a late night gig and it couldn't have been better. It's fantastic. It's, it's one of those night every single bit of the gig went right. 400 people in the audience I came off stage. I, I thought this is it. Nobody could be better than me. Uh, and then Lee Evans went on afterwards and just, just. I mean, I thought they'd have to lift the roof off the place to get people out because they were just fainting with with laughter. And, and I spoke to because it was it was quite discouraging because I know Lee very well. And, and somebody said afterwards, Lee probably uses one word for every ten that I use, but he just gets his laughs off of physicality and he gets his laugh off of facial expressions. And somebody said to me after, it was a lesson for me after, because I realised that I was never going to be that comic that pleases 300 people in a room full of 300 people. But 100 of those 300 people would would make me their favourite comic. So 
that was it was a lesson to me that I had to learn to write for the people that that understood what I was trying to do rather than dumb myself down which is I'm not that's not an insult to to Lee because it's uh, implies that his comedy is the lowest common denominator and it, it's very far from that but it was it was actually quite liberating because then I thought no actually I can I can write stuff that I want to write without having to worry about whether everybody in the room gets it so I think that 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 yeah that the Simpsons guy saying you've got jokes about baseball and jokes about philosophy I find really interesting yeah, and that used to be because uh, when I was in college, so this was you know in the late '80s and early '90s that you know Comedy Central had just started, and one of the things they showed were like the original season of Whose Line, you know, which right. then became much bigger here once you know once they made yeah. the American version. But a lot of my friends and I never really got into the American one, but love the British one. Be, you know, I mean, because it's the same thing where that was such yeah. a smart show, you know, and you've got people like Sessions and Slattery and Josie Lawrence and people like that, yeah. you know, where you, you know, where you, you're working on so many different levels that it was appealing to us, certainly as, you know, smart college kids. Yeah. Yeah, I'm not. <laughs> I'll be honest about this. My problem with improv is always that I'm not very good at it. I've always had this thing. Well, stand ups do improv on stage as well, but improv's really hard. And I've 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 tried it, and I've done sort of stand up based improv where you you stand a lot on your own and and riff around ideas, which which is great. But actually, the quickness of thought actually required to improvise with people like Paul Merton and Josie Lawrence. And Josie's still doing it at, at the Comedy Store, or will be when this. Uh, the pandemic is over and it's they've still got it and it's just they develop the best improvisers develop this instinct but also develop this ability to keep running jokes going they keep sort of balancing plates spinning plates all the way through a two-hour long show and it's, it's probably one of the most joyful moments in comedy when you see people improvising and you see them coming back to an idea that was set up in a different sketch two hours before that's fantastic i mean Tony Slattery is coming out of a long dark place, unfortunately. But he was a he was amazing to watch because you didn't expect Tony Slattery to because it, it's this odd thing because he was so handsome and charming. You didn't expect him to be so good at improv for some reason. There's no there's no logic to it. But he was a really compelling performer and and really really funny. But he was so casual about his own talent that it was hard to take him seriously sometimes. Yeah, I mean, I, it was funny because, like, when that show was on, we had tried because one of the, you know, there was an improv thing at our college. And, you know, I went a couple times, and I enjoyed being there, but I was just not good at it. I mean, I'm a writer, so I slave over stuff. And it's just, you know, I am acerbically witted, you know, but not necessarily in an improv setting. Yeah. So I, you know, I realized I like it. It just wasn't for me. So yeah, same here. Yeah. But I guess I guess we should probably talk about some football while we're here. Yeah, sure. Well, the other it's... thing I was going to say as well, because just just leaving the comedy behind, is that again, it's that thing where you're you're fascinated by British improv, but I love because I'm a I'm an aficionado of the history of comedy. I love the history, especially of British comedy. But when you know there was a documentary on recently about. Robin Williams, uh, God rest his soul, who I, I compared when Robin came to Britain and did this gig at the Comedy Store, which is one of the most amazing nights of my life. But when you, you hear Bill Murray and, and Robin Williams talk about their background in improv, and when you see the old the old footage of American improv, which seems more 
theatrical based but that to me seems more interesting than some of the british improv and it's, in, in american improv it's not the instinct isn't always to go for the, the laugh whereas in british improv the audience gets a little bit impatient if there isn't a big laugh after a, a 30 seconds which is sometimes when they come out of the rules it seems american improv had much stricter rules than the british improv had the, uh, but yeah, but, well, since we're going to leave comedy, I did want to ask, just because I was curious about this, it's like, what is it like being in a sec, having a second generation of stand-ups in the family? That that's, seems very intriguing to me. Yeah, it's it, it's relatively unusual as well. I mean, Mark Steele is also a Crystal Palace fan. His son Elliot is a is a comedian. It's not unusual for actors to have actors in their family as well. The honest answer is it's been completely energising for me. I I was I, I I didn't really know what to think when because when my son was a a professional choir boy when he was he was younger. I mean, despite the fact he thinks he's a South London working class scally and he's not really he was a professional choir boy and he traveled the world as a singer with this south london based choir group and after seven years he just completely fell out of love with it he wanted to be a normal child again and i i didn't think he would ever get back on stage he was he's a very bright intelligent boy he would enjoy talking to you about self-reference in comedy and sitcom for example his knowledge of comedy has always been fantastic so i was surprised when he become it became a stand-up comedian and I was really nervous about it until I saw him. He's 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 really good, and he's going to be he's going to be brilliant. And he's he's fearless. But it's it's introduced me to a whole new generation of comics, and it it's really I wouldn't say it's re-inspired me because I never fell out of love with comedy. But his generation of comics reminded me of how it was when we we first started. There are so few opportunities now for for young people to get on TV doing comedy that they're creating their own opportunities they're starting their own clubs they're starting their own groups they're starting their own theater shows and there's some fantastic comedy talent out there and what's what's different now to when i first started when it was almost exclusively white male and it was mainly middle class is that now stand-up comedy far better reflects our nation as, as a whole culturally so you, you know 40 50 percent of our stand-up comics are women as they're far more black and asian comics than they used to be there's a far better range of, of of class and religion represented and it's it's really exciting and he's he's fantastic and that's one of been the most heartbreaking things about this pandemic is that none of them have been able to work all the festivals were cancelled and they're at that stage where I, I still love stand-up comedy but i'm not obsessed with it there was a time when if i didn't do a gig I had to go and do a gig. I had to work. And, and he's at that stage. He's at that stage where he just wants to be on stage performing. And he's not been able to do that for nine months. But it's it's really given me a, a new lease of life and a new love for stand-up comedy, actually, seeing this this young generation of comics who want to do it for the for the right reasons. There was a time in the 90s and 2000s in, in, in this country, as there was in America, when people took up stand-up comedy because they wanted to get on live at the Apollo. They wanted to get on the TV shows. They wanted to get on the chat shows. And as soon as they did that, the, the stand-up comedy fell away. And I, I like people who have to do comedy, who love comedy so much. And, and my son, Ed Knight, is, is like that. And his generation of comics are as well. And the other good thing about it is that he loves football as much as I do as well, which is, you know, he's a Palace season ticket holder. So he's, he, can't, he can't go to football or do comedy at the moment. So he's not a happy bunny. 
Uh, here, here's the wonderful segue that I had actually already written, but now seems very perfect, perfectly timed to use. Why are there such a disproportionate number of comedians, at least, or it appears, there's a disproportionate number of comedians or people on television that are Arsenal fans? Do you know what? That's a really good question, Mark, because I, I suspect it's because... There are a lot of middle class areas in North London, basically, and a lot of middle class comics. It's it's interesting because the broadcast industry, the sports broadcasting industry, is is dominated by Tottenham Hotspur fans. It, it, every second producer or presenter on on British sport TV, footballs especially, are, are Tottenham fans. But there are an awful lot of Arsenal fans in comedy, and I I don't know why that is, except except that it is geographical. I mean, there are. There are a fair few Palace fans. I'm often asked why so many comedians are Palace fans because people seem to think Palace is a comedy team to choose. But it's the simple fact is that all, all the comedians that are Palace fans are Palace fans because they're from this part of South London, South East London. Uh, but that's a, it's an interesting question. And it's a very good observation because Arsenal is overrepresented amongst comedians because there are a lot of other big players. You'd imagine there'd be a lot of Chelsea fans, but then there, there are... A, a fair few, but yeah, it's interesting that Arsenal, and I think there are people that there are certainly celebrities that I've I've come across over the years working on various TV shows, because football in the 70s and 80s football didn't exist in popular culture on, on British TV. There was no reference to football on British television apart from Morecambe and Wise occasionally. People were scared of of football. It was considered a, a dark, dangerous, working class game. You, know, you could see football on TV, but you wouldn't hear it mentioned in, in any other place. But now in the past 10 years, the Premier League has become such a global brand, a cool brand, that people have to have a football team. It's like Tom Hanks is an Aston Villa fan. And it's almost like it's almost like celebrities agents say to them "Look, you need in case you're asked, you need to have a Premier League team. And it's, you know, the, you know, the Rock supports uh, Macclesfield, which is not a Premier League team. They're, they're far from it. They've just gone out of business. But it seems that football, soccer here has become so cool that people have to have a team. And it's uh, and, and I think Arsenal is, is is a kind of safe one to choose as well. You know, it's it's a fairly middle class, fairly successful, but not too successful uh, team. So, yes, there are. It's a good observation that there are so many Arsenal fans in, in British entertainment. Well, see, because then it could just be the thing where it's self-selecting, where it's like these are these are the things that I consume, and they just happen to have a you know it's like you know like I said when I started watching the BBC on a regular, you know it's like I watched QI, and so you know Alan is of course is you know a big one yeah. of the big it seems to me one of the bigger celebrity Arsenal fans, which you know but then that leaves that leads you to listening to their pod so then you know then you've got alan and ian and keith you know and then that leads or if you listen to fighting talk yeah you know it seems like there's a disproportionate number but then they could just be that's who they picked to be on the show yeah I, whereas I, you know obviously i know you know you've got you know you know morehouse is a united fan and people like that you know, and Ellis is a Swansea fan, although he lives in your part of the woods. He does indeed, yeah. I can't, I can't tell you how pleased I am. I can't wait to tell him either that that Keith got mentioned on a, a, an American podcast. He'll be so pleased. Alan, Alan Davis, who I've known for a long, long time, you know, I get on with very well. He'd be, he'd be happy if you called him a, 
a celebrity. He wouldn't deny that he was a celebrity. He'd be happy to be called an Arsenal fan. He wouldn't be happy to be called a celebrity Arsenal fan because he. There, there's a different connotation to saying somebody is a celebrity fan because it implies that they aren't as right. big a fan as anybody else. You know, that the celebrity is more important than the fan. As it happens, Alan goes to Arsenal games home and away. He goes to the European games as well. He's a proper, proper fan. And, and Alan, every time Arsenal play at Crystal Palace, Alan will come to our local pub and and happily stand there as an Arsenal fan. And he's, he'll happily chat to all the Palace fans. There's no element of danger for him. But he's a proper, proper Arsenal fan who just happens to be a celebrity as well. It's like he, you know, he was an Arsenal fan long before he became a famous comedian and actor and he's it's it's interesting because it's as soon as you listen to his pod you forget that Ian and, and Alan and Keith is no longer a stand-up comedian which is a shame because he was he was brilliant Keith he was a very well he was from a very different background to the to other stand-up comedians this chap called Keith Dover who does the Arsenal podcast now he was he used to work at Ford's in Dagenham the car manufacturers and then he was a builder and decorator and then he became a stand-up comedian, and his the the things he talked about were very different to middle-class audiences. And I always loved watching him, but he could sometimes leave audiences behind with his robust sense of humour. And it was a shame he gave up, but he still does the, the pod, and he's still very popular on it because he has no filter, Keith. He just he, he will just say the first thing that comes into his head, and football fans respond to that. Football fans like somebody who's not guarded. In their response, because because Alan, you know, one of the downsides for Alan to be a celebrity is that he he knows that if he says everything he wants to say about a football match or a referee, then that will be in the press before you can you you, you know it. And he knows that there are consequences to to what he says. Where Keith kind of realizes there are no consequences to what he says, and and therefore is the one the sort of loose cannon on that pod. That, that and he still makes me. Laugh, and as I, said, I can't tell you how chuffed I am to hear mentioned by by you on this. Well, when you're talking about celebrity fans in this way, this will nicely tie into talking about the book. Is you know, as you know, one of the favorite one of the favorite stories you have in the book, which is nice because I'm an Evertonian, is your story about meeting Sylvester Stallone. Yeah, who appears to be. A fan who is a celebrity, not necessarily a celebrity fan. Yeah. Well, he was. That was one of the best and strangest days of my life. As, uh, as it's, it was, it's hard to describe what my job was on Match of the Day too. Officially, the BBC re- referred to me as my pieces were called colour pieces. So, I provided a sort of professional idiocy. I went around the country reflecting football from the fans point of view and basically mingling with fans and at the time palace crystal palace my club were in the championship which was below the premier league and i was visiting premier league clubs and because i was a palace fan i I represented no threat to them and because i was that gave me a certain credibility supporting a lower league team so fans understood what i was trying to do with my pieces on on match the day two which is uh the weekly highlight show but the Everton one was so strange because my my producer said, "Look, Sylvester Stallone's in town. We knew we knew that Sylvester Stallone was was around, was in the country because these rumours had started to spread in the tabloid press that he was interested in being part of a consortium to buy 
Everton Football Club. And my producer said, look, we we've, we want you to go up there and just basically talk to Everton fans about Sylvester Stallone. We've got your Sylvester Stallone cut out to take with you. And I was like, seriously, is this the best we can do? I mean, he's, I was like, come on now, Rocky was was 25 years ago. He's, he's, a, he's an old man. We can do better than this. And I couldn't have been more more wrong. I mean, just having a Rocky cutout with me meant I was mobbed. The Everton fans were so excited. And I was still slightly cynical about it. I've never, in all my years, I've never seen a response to anybody. I mean, you know, I talked earlier on about the ovation Lee Evans got. That was 1%. When, when five minutes before kickoff, the PA announcer said, ladies and gentlemen, you may have heard that there's a, uh, a star in town. And he played the Rocky theme tune and the whole place just went berserk. I was, I was just, and then the two teams came out and lined up to applaud Sylvester Stallone on, and Stallone came out and shadow boxed his way around the ground. And I've never, I mean, I've been to Wembley FA Cup finals. I've been to England internationals. I've been to European tournaments. I've never seen a reaction like it. And then afterwards, we'd been granted 30 seconds with him. Uh, because the world's press were there, and there was there were at least thirty five camera crews, uh, and we were in line for him just to say hello. And I was I was given one question, but the chairman of Everton, Bill Kenroy, and it's just, it's an interesting thing when you travel the country going to football clubs. Liverpool are a, are a great club, Villa are a great club, Newcastle are a great club, but I had happier times visiting visiting Sunderland and Everton. And Birmingham City than I did visiting the big club. Sometimes the bigger club in a city, the, the clubs that, that is perceived as the alpha male, if you like, it, it acts like that. And sometimes the club that's perceived as the lesser club, not that Everton is a lesser club in any way, but they were such a good club to visit. And there's so many parallels between Everton and, and Crystal Palace in terms of the, the, the working class demographic. But the chairman of, of Everton was a guy called Bill Kenwright, who was a famous theatre producer. And was an actor. He was part of the ITV repertory team in the in the sixties, but more in soap operas. Um, and he said, "I've got a little surprise for you at, at half time." And at half time, when we took our place in the in the scrum to get our one word interview with Sylvester Stallone, this minder guy came out and and asked for Kevin Day. Uh, so my myself and my BBC cameraman and sound man stepped forward, and we were taken into a room with Sylvester Stallone. And suddenly, I've met a lot of people. I've met the Dalai Lama. I've met the, the prime ministers. I've met members of the royal family. I've met George. Be- yeah, I've met I've met Muhammad Ali. But some, I was suddenly I was in a room with Rocky. I'm not even a fan of the Rocky films, but suddenly I was I was my I was, my legs were like. And, and Sylvester introduced himself and was very charming. And he said that Bill Kenwright, the chairman of the club, had said that that my my pieces represented what he called blue collar fans. And he he decided that therefore he was going to give me a proper interview and, and he proceeded to tell me about his love for American sports, his love for boxing, his fear that American sports were uh, becoming uh, gentrified and that but the blue collar uh, sports fans were being priced out of of ticket and it was just it's just the most amazing thing and it still seems quite surreal even talking to you about it and the the fact that this this quite small, slightly unprepossessing chap made that series of films that has such cultural resonance even now is is astonishing. And again, it comes back to that conversation we had right at the start, Mark, about 
Britain's relationship to America and American culture in particular. I mean, there, there are British people here who will tell you those Rocky films word for word. And, and it's probably the one person that people say to me, you met Sylvester Stallone. That's the one person they're most impressed with. And it was a it was an astonishing day. And it's the it was the piece of television that I did most that got the biggest reaction. It was in the papers the next day that he'd spoken to me. And then and as it happened in a piece of great good fortune, when we were in the press room after he'd spoken to us at half time, somebody gave uh, Sylvester a cup of Bovril. And for those of your listeners in the States who don't know what bov Bovril is, it's a it's a very strange hundred year old beef extract drink. It's like a sort of beefy gravy that's always served scalding hot. And somebody gave Sylvester this uh, very hot cup of Bovril and it, it, it was too hot and too unpleasant for him. And he, he pulled his terrible face and spat it out. And luckily, our cameraman caught that. So that image was on the front pages every day. And it's astonishing. It's, it's an astonishing power of, of culture. It's astonishing that, you know, his reach, his recognition is probably more than any American politician, I would say, possibly apart from Obama and, and Trump, is that it, all over the world, it's it's amazing. And, and I, I was watching a brilliant documentary about Gene Kelly recently. He's one of my heroes because he was a working class dancer. And there's one thing I regret in my life is that I can't dance. I love watching dance, especially on TV. And Gene Kelly is one of my idols. And I watched this documentary and I hadn't realised how much global recognition Gene Kelly had. And that's it's astonishing to think that even now these young working class American men are, are faces that are recognised all over the world. And, so, and I realise that's a, a long answer to a very short question, Mark. I apologise. That's quite all right. But, uh, yeah, so the, the the cool thing about the book is um, it's called Who Are You, which we haven't actually mentioned yet, yeah. shamefully. But uh, it's sort of like a, a short chapter about each team that's, I guess, currently – uh, in the in the football in the top flight of the football in the, the ninety two in the pyramid, yeah, and just just like a story about each team, and then you jokingly suggest why people should or should not root for them. I guess, yeah, I don't know if this is a term in British publishing, but here I guess we would call it a bathroom reader. It's one of those. Yeah, it's it's one of those. Well. Yeah. yeah, yeah, those books you take to the loo with you where you can read two or three pages at a time while you're taking care of things and move on. And, you know, they're nice, nice short bite-sized chunks. And then, like I said, there's, there's like a little thing about, about every team in there. Yeah. I'm, I, it, it's, as I say, we call it a toilet book here, but uh, toilet is also a term of insult. So I, I, I had to come to terms with the idea that people were referring to it as a, a toilet. But I, I, I wanted the book to be able to be read as a whole as well for football fans. And I'm not going to pretend that a non-football fan would suddenly pick up this book and go, all oh, right, I get it now. Uh, it's not for them. And luckily there are enough people who are football fans in the country to in enjoy the book. I've, I've always felt sorry for, for people who don't like football because for a start, I don't know what they talk to strangers about at weddings. Uh, and it's, it's odd. And I've also got, I get very upset when people assume that because I, I talk about football, because I do podcasts about football, because I do radio shows about football, because I write about football, that I only know about football. I, I love the theatre. I love dance. I love music. I love reading. I love history. I love archaeology. I love a wide range of things. But football has been at the centre of my 
life since I was a child. It's been the drumbeat, the baseline, if you like, of of my life. And I wanted to write a book that you could read from cover to cover, but I was also very aware that it's one of those books that hopefully people will buy or will be it will be bought for them. And of course, the first thing you will do is flick through to see what I've written about your club, then probably get a bit sulky about that, and then see what I've written about your rival clubs, and then you'll see what I've written about your dad's club or your mum's club. And I'm I'm aware of that, and I'm quite pleased about that. I've had a, it's become a little bit of a theme. People sending me texts with where they're reading the book and where they've got the book, and quite a few of them have got the book on their their bathroom windowsill or their bathroom shelf, and I'm I'm perfectly happy with that. And the, I wanted to write. I've always wanted to write a book because my my dad taught me to read when I was four, because he he thought, and this is a quote, he thought it would come in handy. And I've always adored reading, and I had a reading age of fourteen when I was seven. I was I was I was happier, but it used to drive my mum up the wall. My mum was Irish, and she wanted me to be out on the street, getting some colour in my cheeks and climbing trees. And I just wanted to be in my room, reading books. And I was I've always been obsessed with books, and I've always adored them, and I've always wanted to write one. But for years, I had this kind of imposter syndrome uh, that I kind of thought, well, yeah, I'm a South London working class boy. I shouldn't be really, really be working in the industry I'm working in, let alone thinking about writing a book. But then. When the idea came up, and the, I had the original idea a long time ago, when out of a lack of work at the start of 2019, I decided that it was time to sit down and write the sample chapters and and, and try to sell it. I realised how much I was enjoying it and how much I loved being in creative control. And I wanted to write a football book. I didn't want it just to be autobiographical or just to be about Crystal Palace because I didn't think that would be interesting to many people. I wanted to write about every club and, and the 92 is a kind of mythical number for for English soccer fans because there, there has always tra- there's traditionally been 92 teams in the four top English leagues whatever they've been called when I was growing up they were just division one division two three and four now you know, it's premier league championship league one league two whatever they're called there's always been 92 teams so it's a kind of magic number and I, I wanted to respect every club as much as each other. So I wanted to write as much about Mansfield or about uh, Exeter as I did about Manchester United and Manchester City. And I think football fans have, have responded to that. But, but more importantly, I wanted to I wanted people to read it because there are elements of my story in there because, you know, there are certain clubs I write about. And I always there's always an element of the history of each club in the book. There will be facts in the book that you can pick up on. I wouldn't recommend using it as a textbook because some of the facts are questionable but there is a history of each club in there and there's also a different angle but I wanted to reflect what my experience of those clubs were and talk about my friends because I I, I kind of instinctively knew that you know fans of Mansfield or Exeter would, would read the book and they'll go hey I've got mates like that I've been to games like that I remember how cold that place was I wanted it to bring memories back for people I didn't want it to be nostalgic was the was the other thing. I didn't want it to be everything was better when I was a young football fan because that absolutely isn't true. I just wanted to reflect the fact that it's astonishing that a country as small as England should have 92 professional football clubs plus another 66 semi-professional football clubs. It's it's odd, but the actual writing process, it's probably the happiest I've been... Because I, I love I love my job. I love being a stand-up comedian. It's It's the most amazing thing in the world, but the older you get, I don't want to schlep around the country like my son does now, doing gigs 200 miles away to 20 people. I want to pick and choose the gigs I do. I love writing on television shows like Have I Got News For You. I'm very proud of that. 
but I I was completely in charge of the creative process for this. You know, if I write on a TV show that I've got news for you, I don't get to decide which of my jokes are used in the show. That's a decision made by the the presenter and by the producer. And I can argue for my jokes, but in the end, it's not my decision. So writing the book was was fantastic because it meant I was in charge of the creative stuff. And then, of course, there's a there's a discussion to be had with the editor afterwards and with the fact checker and stuff. But essentially, everything that's in this book is decided by me. And it, it's changed the way I view my whole career now because I, I don't want to go back to just being having other people in charge of me. So already I've started other projects. I've started on a new show for Edinburgh next year, which I'm going to write and direct. I've reached an age where I now want to be in charge of my own my own creativity. And I, and I, I hope the book sells well, because to be perfectly honest, the, the pandemic wiped out 80% of my work and 100% of my wife's work and my son's work. So I need the book to sell well, to be perfectly honest. But apart from that, I'm just so proud of the fact that I've actually produced a book because it's just... It's it's a legacy. It's something that you can point to. It's it's on the shelves in my local bookshelf. It's something that I never thought would happen. And luckily, touch wood, the response to the book has been overwhelmingly positive. It seems to have touched a nerve with, with people. And I think that's because I have lived the life of a normal football fan. I've been going to games since I was, I was six. I've been travelling for 20 hours in the back of a van to away games since I was 12. You know, I, I know the experience i know the good the good and the bad of it all and i think i think people respect that i think there's a certain integrity in the book that i wanted to be there do you know and, and i think alan davis wrote some very kind words for the for the for the cover and, and later on it's like if alan wrote a book like this people would understand that as well there's if ian stone wrote a book like this if keith dover wrote a book like this people would understand it in a way that they may not if James Corden did, or Tom Hanks did, for example, you know, I've, you know James Corden's a, a, a big West Ham fan, but I don't think that people would necessarily think that he had travelled the country supporting West Ham in a way that I've travelled the country supporting my team. And I think the fact that I support an unsuccessful team also adds another another level of integrity to it, if you like, as well. If 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 I was writing about constantly seeing my team win matches, that would be boring for people. But yeah, you know, I. I happily acknowledge in a lot of the chapters that I went to a certain place, like Carlisle, for example, which I know to an American, 250 miles isn't that far away, but you know, Carlisle was very far to the north of London. And when you're travelling 250 miles there, 250 miles back, to see your team lose 4-1 on a freezing cold afternoon, people people get that. People who have done the same thing think, this is great, somebody's writing about my experience. When you're when you've been to a game in Blackburn, which is 200 miles away, an evening game, and the train breaks down on the way home, and you don't get back to three o'clock the following day, football fans go, "Yeah, that's happened to me." So that's that's really what I wanted to do is reflect my love and my joy and my pride of our of our brilliant game. Yeah, and it's funny too when you read all of these stories, like sort of the commonality, you know. Yeah. Almost, you know, almost all the teams were founded in the Victorian era by yeah. factory workers or mates in pubs and yeah. you know that even you know the clubs that have gone on to be you know mega global brands all have the same kind of similar beginning as Dagenham and Redbridge yeah which uh, people accuse me uh, of being hopelessly romantic about football but it is 
It's one of the few things that, uh, as one of the quotes in the book, Bill Shankly, the famous manager of Liverpool, who said that uh, football is the working man's ballet. And I've always argued that ballet should be the working man's ballet. There's no reason why working people shouldn't watch ballet and fall in love with ballet as much as, as I have, for example. But football, for me, is the last kind of refuge of purely working class history. The, the history of just about every single football club is tied up with uh, a local industry, for example, as you say. It's like when I grew up as a kid, I knew that they made hats in Luton because Luton Town's nickname was the Hatters. I knew that they made saddles in Warsaw because Warsaw's nickname was the Saddlers. You know, these clubs came out of local factories, as you say, or local church groups or local cricket teams sometimes that they wanted something to do over winter, but they were always working class communities. And it's there isn't as much interest in working class history in our country as there as there should be. Most of the history in our country is still about kings and queens. And, you know, I'm, it's slightly odd of me to say that because I have this mild, this mild obsession with Anne Boleyn. So I'm, I'm as happy to talk about kings and queens as I am to talk about working class history. But football is one of those places where you can talk about working class history openly, if you like. And it's it always amazes me how a lot of people don't know the origin of their own club. Well, they know the origin of their own club, but not the origins of of other clubs. So this is it's really good when I I've had football fans say, you know what, I really enjoyed that chapter about Swindon. So I had no idea they they came out of this, or no idea that you know Watford came out of the, where their particular group of ragged young urchins. And it's 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 endlessly fascinating. For me. The the difficulty is though because it's working class culture. So much of the of the history was oral. They, you know, people didn't write stuff down because when you started a football team in 1880, you didn't think it was going to last forever. You were just having a kick about with some mates. So why would you write down what was happening? Why would you write down who was in that team or what the colour of your your shirts were? But you know, I'm not sure. You could probably tell me, Mark, whether it's the same. Yeah, you know, my my American brother-in-law is a massive Broncos fan, uh, and I I've always loved when when Channel Four started showing NFL here in the 80s. And of course, Palace fans all started to support Philadelphia Eagles because our nickname is the Eagles. And we always loved American football. But it wasn't until I met Clint, my cousin, and watched games with him, my uh, uh, brother-in-law, sorry, and watched games with him, that I started to fully realise the the nuances of the game, but also the cultural impact of, of what football means. I mean, I didn't know about the whole two hours eating and drinking beforehand in the car park stuff. I didn't know, I didn't know that American football teams had their supporters had, had names, you know, and then it was fascinating to find out about the culture of American sport and to learn that it isn't just English football that has these sacred sort of mores, if you like. Well, it's, I mean, with like the sort of major American sports or North American sports, if you want to include hockey, is that, I mean, they're all, they all were like sort of developed, I guess similarly, but and then tailored to each sport. It's like, you know, base, you know, baseball goes back sort of to like the 1840s, 1850s. Yeah. What what we consider recognizable baseball, not you know a version of rounders or whatever. Yeah. You know, and foot. You know, the NFL you know, started in the 1920s, so it's only 100 years old. Yeah. You know, basketball began when the guy that quote-unquote invented it, you know, was like at a, was like a gym teacher and needed yeah. something for his guys to do during the winter. 
Yeah. So he put up a peach basket and had them run around and throw the ball into a peach basket. Yeah. And hockey is obviously Canadians skating on ponds, you know, hitting <laughs> something with a stick. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. So, you know, they all sort of, you know, have their own version of that. Just, yeah. you know, because, you know, mostly for America, it's all at least 100 years earlier or later yeah. than than British football. Just, be, you know. Because of the well, countries. I, I suppose it gets a bit um, diluted with you a little bit, fan culture, because because of the franchise system, there's always a chance that your team will be taken away from you anyway. But it's, I've always found, I think Frasier, of all the American sitcoms, Frasier is probably my favourite. And I used to love the fact that, you know, there's there's no real class system in, in your country. But I used to love the fact that the signifier of being middle class, if you like, for want of a better word, was that the boys didn't understand football. I used to love... I used to love their dad, just, you know, his rituals for getting ready to watch American sport and his dismay and despair that his two sons had no interest in, in sport whatsoever. And that, that seems to me quite an important distinction in, in your country in a way that it, it isn't here. It, there are very few people in this country that don't have an interest in some sport or other. It's, you know, whether it's, it's cricket, golf or whatever. This is, this is still a country that's obsessed by sport. And it seems to me that for all, for all that there are certain regions in your country that are obsessed by sport, the whole the country as a whole doesn't get behind national teams, for example, the way that we would get behind national teams here. Well, I think that only applies usually for the Olympics. And I think well, it's – I think – and I don't think that's necessarily as true now, mainly because there are so many sports, whereas the Olympics used to be special. Yeah. And two, you have, you know you frame the Olympics in the prism of the Cold War. Ah, uh, okay, yeah. You know, I mean, probably, you know, if you were to rank sort of in American sports, um, like the most important event, quote unquote, in American sports, it would probably be the Olympic hockey team. Oh, wow, really? Okay. When they beat, because because you again you have to put it in its cultural context where. Okay, it's nineteen. It's it's we're in the middle of the Cold War. We're in a very low point, sort of in American history, because we're in the you know we're, we're sort of in the end of the '70s depression. We're in the middle of the hostage crisis, so we're playing the Olympics in the United States and not in a big city, in the place where you've mentioned already in Lake Placid. Yeah. Um, you know. America, you know, Americans were still big on the Olympics were quote unquote for amateurs. Right. Okay. Right. And you know, they're playing, you know, you're playing this and because of the way hockey worked then, um that was a team full of university players. It wasn't full of people who played in the National Hockey League. It wasn't right. our best players. It was a ragtag, you know, it, it's it's your sports movie underdog film come to oh, life. Wow. Yeah, you know, no, interesting. You yeah. know, the Soviets are, are quasi-professional, you know, they're the Red Army, you know what I mean? They're, you know, the stereotypical Iron Curtain juggernaut. They had beaten the American team soundly when they played warm-up matches before the Olympics, and the Russians had beaten professional teams during that tour and then they shellacked the American team and then your group of guys come out of nowhere 
beat the so. Of course, the funny part is people. I mean, one that game was actually not shown live in the United States. It actually happened in the afternoon. Oh well, okay. And so people like they play like maybe at like five six in the afternoon, and then they showed it later because because the Olympics on television here is generally more packaged as entertainment than sport. Right, I see. So a lot of times, I mean, this has become a bigger deal in recent times that things are, pre, you know, because the Olympics were the, to generalize, the Olympics were always seen by television executives as the sports that women would watch. Huh. <laughs> so okay. here, there's a lot of atypical sports that during the Olympics get the highest ratings. Like in the Winter Olympics, the biggest thing here has traditionally been figure skating. Oh, okay, right. Which isn't really a sport because it's judged, and it's built around narrative more than sport. Yeah, it's interesting. But so that hockey game was shown in the afternoon, not shown until time. So people, so word began to filter that we had beat the Russians. And then they showed it. And the funny thing is, that wasn't for the gold medal. That was the semifinal game. They actually won the gold medal like two or three days later by beating Finland, which is anticlimactic. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah, little, yeah. That's interesting. But, that's, but, I mean, other than – I mean, people are – depending on where you are in the country here, people can be very fiercely regional and tribal. Because right, I always okay. say the closest thing to – European football attitude is college sports, where people are fanatical about their teams and their rivals, especially in the American South with college football. I mean, this is the thing. I mean, the famous story that I, that I always tell Europeans when they talk about how crazy, you know, when you compare it to crazy South American football fans or whatever, um, one of the biggest rivalries in the South is between Alabama and Auburn, which is in Alabama. So they're that's like their derby. Right. And th- but there was a guy then one of the things in one of the campuses they had a famous arboretum. And there was a guy who was so obsessed with hating the other team that he went to their arboretum and poisoned uh-huh. a bunch of like these hundred year old trees. Wow. So, I mean, it would be the equivalent of, you know, you know, somebody from, you know, somebody from Spurs going to, you know, going to, like, deface something famous yeah. in, in Highbury or something. But, like, that's – because, again, especially now, American sports has become so corporate and yeah. sort of the way, you know, the Premier League is going with some of the stuff that's happened recently – but sort of college sports always stay the same because, and I guess this is true of regular sports, but like the players always change. Yeah. But you're, 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 as the famous saying is, you're rooting for the laundry. Yeah. Where, you know, that's not, that's not always necessarily true in other sports. But one of the things I was going to mention that you said a couple of minutes ago, I was, you know, is you're sort of now, sort of like the working class football guy, that it's funny that you're now doing a podcast on on football finance with 
a university professor. Yeah, it's interesting. Firstly, that arboretum thing is is fascinating because that level of fanaticism wouldn't happen here, now, despite the fact that we are. Even I think some fans are too are too tribal. But what would happen is, for example, Tottenham Hotspur have just had a brand new eight hundred million pound stadium built, and one of the best stories to come out of it was that an Arsenal fan was one of the builders and dropped his scarf into the foundations uh, before it was noticed. So Tottenham fans have to live with the fact that there is an Arsenal fan in the foundation, an Arsenal scarf in the foundations of their of their stadium, and that's a sort of understated humour that British fans really like. Yeah, the, the Price of Football podcast with Kieran, uh, who is a, a university professor and a very good one, but he's also from a working class background. He's from a place called Elephant and Castle, which is just down the road for me, and he's uh, he's he's from a proper working class background. He just happened to be educated out of his class in the same way that I was to an extent. But it's um, it's strange that we're talking about mega million sums of money we we've just had our first anniversary of this podcast and we celebrated our hundred million our millionth beg your pardon download a couple of weeks ago and it's it came as a surprise to both of us because a, a bbc producer who decided he wanted to produce other projects in his spare time approached me and said he had this idea for a podcast about football finance and i went well good luck with that that sounds fascinating and he said no i'd like you to host it and i said well I have no interest in finance. I'm rubbish with numbers. And I, he said, yeah, I've heard you talk about stuff like that on on radio. I'd like you to be the idiot, basically. So he put Kieran and I together. Uh, and as an indication of how tribal British fans are, Kieran didn't tell me for four episodes that he was a Brighton fan, a Brighton and our Palace's big rival. So I probably would have refused to do it if I'd known he was a Brighton fan beforehand. But it's again, it's it struck a nerve in a way that we didn't think was possible. And we, we get listeners all over the world because we we don't just deal with British football. We've got, I mean, on our next pod, we've got a section about football in Nigeria. We've had quite a lot of stuff about uh, MSL soccer. We talk about women's football as well. Uh, we've got we've got listeners in basically every country there is a there's a football league. We have listeners and unfortunately it turns out that there are no shortage of things to talk about when it comes to finance in football uh, not all of them are good in fact very few of them are good we've had some brilliant stories this week about uh, British Premier League football players helping communities but for the most part our pod exists because finance and football are not a good mix at the moment we we sort of both long for the day when we haven't got anything to talk about when the pandemic is over, when the money that is awash in English football is fairly distributed. Because that's the main problem with English football is that it's one of the most recognisable global brands. And there is an awful lot of money floating around English football, but it's distributed in a shockingly unfair way. Uh, and that's something we reflect on the pod. But unfortunately, it turns out that's the case in most European leagues. And what, what I find really interesting is that uh, uh, the USA, a country that most English people would see is the most capitalist country in the world when it comes to sport, is economically the most democratic. The way the way finances, the way money is distributed in American sport is is far fairer than it is in, in English football, for example. But then you've got the downside there that there's no promotion and relegation, but American sports thrive on the fact that you need competition that it's not good for a sport if two clubs dominate 
every sport, basically. So they spread the money around to make sure that Green Bay Packers have got as much chance of winning the title as, as LA or wherever it is. And I, I think that's to the credit of American sport. I mean, they're not, they're not doing it for social justice reasons. They're doing it for good, healthy reasons to make sure there's a competitive league and that people want to watch it and that you can sell the TV rights. But nevertheless, it's a much more fair financial model than we have in, in European football. That's, and that's something we re reflect quite often, but it's a pod that I really enjoy doing, but I, there are times when I really wish we didn't have to do it. It could be quite, a, it could be quite depressing sometimes, but Kieran and I are of a similar age and a, and a similar background. And we've had a, a fairly similar trajectory in life. Uh, and we've kind of settled into a, a sort of sitcom vibe. We both have our established characters in, within the pod. And I think, I think our listeners respond to that as much as they respond to the actual financial information that we're imparting. And we, we've, we found quite early on that if we could try and put a, a humorous spin on the grim news and people were more interested in hearing it. Well, I was going to say, I believe we finally have probably reached the point where your eyebrows cannot be raised any <laughs> higher by uh, some outlandish story. <laughs> well, they, some of the stories he tells about himself off 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 there I, my eyebrows are still going up and down yeah that was uh, in the first couple of weeks when he was filling me in on just how unfair English football was it, it became a standing joke that my eyebrows couldn't be raised any further but uh, unfortunately it's becoming harder to shock me now than it was at the start which is a which is a shame but I've it's in, in a strange sort of way having to do it uh, remotely because we did the pods obviously together in the same studio for the first few months but having Having to do it remotely is, is kind of, and I, I can't quite put my finger on why this should be the case, but it's kind of made it a more intimate experience in a way. We're kind of more open and honest with each other than we would be perhaps if we were looking at each other in the eyes. And I, I think, I think radio and podcasts are one of the few good things to emerge out of this pandemic because people are just looking for for ways to distract themselves for an hour, for two hours, and. And sometimes you switch the radio on to listen to music, and sometimes you you riff, you rifle through the list of podcasts and you find one you like. And what I've discovered is that BBC Radio, for example, there, there are five BBC Radio channels, and people don't listen to, to all of them. People will listen to one of them, and it tends to be that the older you get, the higher up the thing you know. So Radio Four, for example. I doubt if anybody under the age of 40 listens to BBC Radio 4, and yet they listen to it religiously. They won't listen to it, and they're, they're so passionate about Radio 4. And that's what happens with with pods. People discover a podcast, and they have to tell everyone about it. And they, they have such loyalty, and it, it enables you to to establish a bond with your, with your listeners. It's like the five-year plan Crystal Palace podcast that we do. We we get like eight thousand weekly listeners, but we the four the four of us that have hosted that from the start have have almost grown up together. I mean, the, the two younger lads were only in their early twenties when we started doing it, and now that they've got kids of their own, and it, we've you establish a bond, I think, through through podcasting and through radio that you can't really do through through live comedy or through TV. And I think during the pandemic, I think people have clung on to podcasts really for a bit of. I can't tell you, Mark, the amount of times people say to me, it, it's great just to get some normal chat, it, you know, um, especially when a lot of people, so many people in this country can't work, they're, they're, they're on furlough or they simply have no work. 
it's it's it establish a, a sense of routine if you like that people they get up at nine o'clock on a monday or a thursday and they listen to the pod and you can almost set your watch by the you know the same people will treat their response to me at the same time each day and and, and it's it's really quite heartening and it's quite it's quite something as you know mark that people listening to your pod it's it it always amazes me it's the same on the five-year plan pod when people all over the world are sending you in questions or comments and it it's it's amazing to think you know for my generation of the fact that somebody can just ask you a question in sydney and five seconds later you get that question in london is is amazing and crystal palace got to the fa cup final in 2016 it's only the second time we ever got to the fa cup final which for those of your listeners who don't know is is you know we have the league and we have the fa cup and the fa cup is the second most prestigious tournament you can have in english football really and um, we had a, a message two weeks before that from an american guy an american palace fan uh asking whether we were having a drink on the night before the the cup final because he was coming over with his mother uh who was exiled from south london it was the first time he'd been to england uh he was a palace fan he'd never seen the palace game before but he was coming to the cup final and we happened to mention that we were going to this particular pub uh in the center of london and we we said well okay well if, if you want to come and join us we put this message out to every overseas palace fan who is coming over to say look, look if if you've got no one to meet if you've got no family to go to come and see us in this pub and 180, 180 people turned up on the friday night before the before the game all people that listened to the pod all strangers to us but we knew them because we recognized their names from the pod and it was just this amazing feeling of camaraderie for us to be on a beautiful summer's evening is a pub by the river thames to be with nearly 200 people from all over the world who were united by their support for a team in South London. And it was it was a very emotional, unfortunately we ruined it by losing the cup final, but it was a very emotional evening. And to hear the reasons that people had for supporting Palace, normally there are family reasons, but not, but not always. And it was, it got very emotional because so many people from America, from Canada, from South Africa, from Australia were there almost in memory of their parents who were dead and gone but who would who were the reason they were supporting crystal palace and it, it brings us back to the conversation we had at the start about about my book and about how football touches lives and about how there are people all over the world who support Accrington stanley who support Torquay united and they have their reasons to do so and i find that i find that amazing and, and the sense of pride and joy and, and camaraderie you had and and, and again it they were strangers, but when you've immediately got that thing to talk about, when you're both wearing the same red and blue scarf, it's just a shortcut. You've got something to talk about straight away. And then within an hour of starting to talk about football, you're suddenly talking about families or about politics or about American sitcoms as as we do. It's just that having that one thing in common opens the gates to so many other things because we, we've talked for a long time now the only part of the conversation was about football but the reason we started to talk was football the reason you and i got got in touch was through football and i i find that joyful in a way i really do find it joyful well i mean i've been listening to as i think we mentioned uh when we were tweeting back and forth a while ago i mean i listened to the chaffers podcast and that's right. 10 years i actually it's funny i looked it up i was looking to see if if the shows are, like, on YouTube or anything like that, but I saw that, like, the Twitter 
is still there, and it was like the last tweet was from like March first, twenty ten. Yeah, and I'm like I didn't realize that, that. I mean, I remember listening during the World Cup, but it's like it's funny to think that that pod was ten years ago. I know. It's, I I really miss it. As, as, I, it took me a while to catch up with the idea of podcasts, and that's partly a, an age thing. Is that they they didn't exist when I was when I was growing up, and it, it took me a while to understand how they worked and to understand that they were here to stay. And that was the first one I was properly involved with. And, and Chappers, Mark Chapman, who's a, now become a very famous BBC sports host uh, and, and is a very good friend. And, and with Graham Pohl as well, who was a, a, a professional referee. It was, it was brilliant fun to do. And I learned an awful lot about what you can and can't share uh, on that. And, I also learned a lot about um, the tyranny of laughter, which is the way Chappers put it. Because my instinct as a stand-up comedian when I first started doing that podcast was that everything I said had to be funny. And if it didn't um, have a laugh at the end of it, I had not succeeded. And I, I learned through doing that pod that you could just have an opinion. You could just sit back and let other people have their opinion. You didn't always have to, as Mark put it, succumb to the tyranny of the punchline. And that that's something that I've kept I've kept with me. And I uh, you know, I love stand up comedy. I'm probably never happier than when I'm I'm on a stage, but I also love live radio. But after that podcasting is my is my favourite thing to do. There's a there's an immediacy about podcasting. There's a, a sense of sharing with the listeners in podcasting you don't get in anything else. But also there's this kind of liberation for me in that I can just talk about things. I can just have a conversation. And if I say something funny, that's a bonus, but I don't have to plan it. Like beforehand, when I first started doing the Chappers pod, I would prepare jokes. I would say, right, I really hope that somebody says this because I'm going to come back with that. And then you forget to be in the moment. It's like when we were talking about improv earlier on. One of the reasons I found hard about improv is because I was constantly thinking ahead and hoping that something would happen instead of listening to what actually was happening and responding to that. And that's the thing I found hardest about improv. And I do have to go soon, Mark, so this is going to bring the conversation full circle. One of the things I found hardest about improv was that learning to not be funny every time you you stepped on stage, learning that it was also an important part of the process to move the scene on or to, uh, to, to adopt a character and... I couldn't do that because I just want it to be funny. And if I, if necessary, I would pull a funny face or even tell a joke and it would get the laugh, but it also, it wasn't, it wasn't improv. So podcasting that Chappers pod, I, I loved doing that Chappers pod. And we did it in the studio right next to a very, very traditional English pub. And we always had an hour in that English pub afterwards. And I still have very fond memories of it. This time of year as well, it had a blazing log fire and it was always, that sense of, I, I don't like, like to use the word camaraderie again, but it's that, just that sense of shared experience after you've done a good podcast and then you went into this pub and you you just were satisfied with yourself and enjoyed each other's company. I, and I, I kind of missed that, I have to say. Well, I think one of the, the cool things about podcasts is that they're destination-based and it's not you're not subject to having to put up with people telling you about demographics or yeah. lowest common, like as you would, like even if you were on the radio, 
you know, you would still, you know, you can only be so niche if you're on a commercial radio station because, you know, you've got to worry about the bottom line. Whereas if you're doing a podcast, it's like, do whatever you want, talk about whatever you want, and your audience will find you. Yeah, I mean, now, you know, if, if it's important to monetize you, then that's a different story. But, you know, I don't, you know, I've been doing this for like four or five years. I've been listening to podcasts since... I guess technically they were quote unquote created probably mainly by people like Ricky Gervais, and that's almost yeah. tw- twenty years ago. Twenty now. years, ago, yeah. Well, do you know one of the the that word demographic? One of the biggest problems with British comedy at the moment, TV comedy, TV entertainment, is that word demographic. People are desperate to create shows for. A certain, they're desperate for the sitcom that twenty-somethings will will watch. They're desperate. They're desperate for the drama show that thirty-somethings will watch. And people don't watch TV like that anymore. They, they, you, and, and what's happened now is that TV producers and TV channels have cottoned onto the fact that these things called podcasts are out there. It's taken them that long, but they now start trawling for podcasts to find podcasts that could, could make good TV shows, and they've missed the point entirely because the best podcasts won't make good TV shows because the point of them is they are the opposite of TV shows. Because as you, as you say, even on a, a show like QI, which has a wide ranging subject matter, there are things you can't talk about. You simply can't. On a podcast, you can go off in any direction you want. And as you say, your audience will find you. And once that audience has found you, they will stay with you. And, and that's why you see Ellis James's podcast doing so well. You see a lot of other comedians, but you, you see a, a podcast about football finance doing well. For, I mean, we've had people approach us about turning it into a segment on a TV show or a radio show, and we have to go, no, it won't work. It works the way it works now because we have a relationship together, and that's how it works. Your podcast works because you know people listening to it understand that you will start in one place and you're going to end up on a different continent and they won't mind because that's the sort of thing they want. And they've got minds that are nimble enough to to cope with that. And there are podcasts for people who just want to bake cakes. And that's that's fantastic. There's a democracy in podcasts that there simply is on, on isn't on British television. And again, to come right back to the start of our conversation, when, when Dad's Army was being sold back in the, the late 60s, there is some element of of disquiet about it because the war hadn't long been over and BBC execs thought uh, it, it might be considered disrespectful but they didn't say well how's this going to play to the 25 to 30 year old demographic in the northeast they just said yeah go away and, and write it and and now it's a sitcom that anybody can watch I'll watch it with my dad and my son and even though we've seen it three four times together we'll still laugh because it's got good characters and it's funny and that's that's something that's gone out of British television, the idea that you can just create good characters and funny situations. Now everything has to have a niche. It has to have a demographic. And it strikes me that podcasts are the only place that you can create art, if you like, that hasn't got a demographic and it hasn't got a niche. Well, it's funny here that there's a lot of cable channels that because it's cheap and easy programming now just televise radio shows. It's yeah. like, I know you can watch something, you know, like, Back when I could, like, I would watch the studio feed from Five Live when Chappers was on or Kelly Cates was on just yeah. because I was listening anyway. So I'm yeah. like, well, it's kind of fun to watch. Or like when I would watch Fighting Talk because that was a fun thing to watch while you're listening. And, you know, ESPN's done that a lot. They have, like, an entire, I think, 
almost every show on ESPN radio is now simulcast on television. And it's like, oh, wow, really? it's like, you're just, you're watching a radio show on television. It's like, is there anything more like sort of low budget, low frills? <laughs> it's like one guy in a radio studio with a camera on, but yeah. Again, here you've got 500 channels, and you've got to fill it, and you're a multimedia conglomerate, so it's good for your bottom line. But, yeah. Kevin, I have kept you much longer than I had expected. Like I said, I went, I looked at all my notes, and yeah, I did not plan for us to spend a half an hour talking, <laughs> about, talking about British comedy of the 1970s, but there you are, and that's, again, that's the beauty of podcasts, you know. I always love it when... when podcast say they're out of time and i'm like well unless you're paying for the studio there is no there is no out of time well that's part of the uh that's the other thing funny enough mark about uh kieran and i doing it together but remotely is that that was very often the case we you know studios especially in central london are very expensive so we had to keep the show to 45 minutes now if we've got extra stories or if we've got questions that we really, really like, we can explore them. And as you say, I've just looked at my uh, laptop screen and seen the time. It, it's like I, I didn't think I'd be with you this long, but also I love conversations that are non-linear. I love the idea that we just – somebody says something, you go – it's like the best conversations in a pub where somebody just says something and somebody else goes, oh, yeah, but did you see? And everyone else goes, yeah, no, that's not right. And that's that's what it's been like tonight. I've really enjoyed it, Mark. Thank you. No, it's like I'm looking at my questions. You know what? I don't mind that we did not talk about Project Restart or pay-per-view. You know, right. I'd much rather talk to you about British sitcoms. <laughs> so, yeah, like we said, um, your book is Who Are You? And you can get it online. You can get it digitally if you're over here. You can get the digital yeah. audio. I, I listened to the audio because I think that was sort of more entertaining listening to you read it than it would have been for me to just read it myself. So that's... Yeah, yeah well, they were very... Uh, Bloomsbury were very keen to do an audio version, uh, as was I, because they are they are very popular with people. And it's, I was quite delighted that they asked me to do it in my own voice because quite often they will get an actor or somebody to read it out. And they, they said it's much better if I do it in my voice because there are enough people in the football world who know me. But I have to say, much as I love the sound of my own voice, I, after three days in that studio, but three nine-hour days, it was recreating the enthusiasm of the first two chapters for the last two chapters was quite difficult. So I'm glad you enjoyed the audio book, Mark. Well, I'm sure the fans of Accurate Constantly probably appreciate that thing too. <laughs> Yeah, they got they got all the energy. Accurate and Stanley got the best of it. Cool. And yeah, and we will have the links to the pod and the book and all the stuff in the show notes. So, Kevin, again, thank you very much for your time. And hopefully we'll have you back at some point to talk about sitcoms or football or whatever else may come up. I, I would happily talk about as I I, I, I was sort of not on the back foot a little bit because I wasn't expected to talk about sitcoms. But I'm, I'm very passionate about the history of uh, British comedy british stand-up and british tv comedy so uh very happy to come and talk to you about 60s and 70s tv programs and i'll talk to you about the avengers and the prisoner all night as well so it's been it's been an absolute pleasure mark and uh thank you to all your listeners thank you kevin um we will have an announcement probably in the next week or so about our next uh project that's coming up to stay tuned to the pod and to the website for that, and everybody, thanks for listening, and we will talk to you next time.